Oh, the shame that will get if you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33, the football happy hour here in Off the Ball. End of call here with you until about 10 o'clock this evening. You're very welcome along. Colin Buig is on the line with me again. Colin, welcome along to the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm very well. It's a Friday evening. There's lots of football on these days with the rescheduled fixtures and the Carabao Cup and the FA Cup. And the La Liga with the Clasico taking place in Saudi Arabia the Supercoppa in the uh, Serie A. There's a lot going on. It's a, it's it's hard to keep track of what's actually happening in football right now. We're in that weird period. Yeah, I think we discussed this uh, back in the last year as well, is that like, this, is, this is too much football. This is too much going on. I mean, I'm saying this from a football connoisseur point of view, of course, and uh, speaking on behalf of my fellow connoisseurs, that um, it's just uh, relentless. Like I'm looking at the live score app, and I, I'm actually looking for a break in the fixture list to see. It's like, when, when's the next break? Um, and all this week, the past week, like you had Arsenal-Liverpool Thursday night. And you think, you know, Thursday night's kind of sacrosanct if it's not European football and if it's European off-season in Europe. And even that's being infiltrated now, albeit to do with COVID-related uh, postponed fixtures. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's just so much. And I remember back in the day, like when, you, when I got subscription TV for the first time, like at home, uh, like as a treat and you might only get like a short term subscription to be gone six months later but you'd watch every single match that was on TV you'd watch like Luton against Notts County and you know you, you just couldn't get over the fact that you had this access but now it's just ubiquitous and it's uh, it's never ending but I mean it's one of the loveliest complaints to have in life but I'm finding that there's too much that I don't know about you yeah yeah it's one of these conversations that I, I actually don't like having in terms of whether there's too much football on but I think it's why don't it's you like having for me. that conversation? Because I, I just feel like that always happens. You always end up in this conversation. Is there too much football on? And then the likes <laughs> of COVID happen and you're you're absolutely <laughs> desperate for, for some actual football on TV. But I just think with even with the COVID situation is adding a different level to what we'd normally have at this period of the year because you can turn the TV on a, on a Tuesday night and there's a Premier League match on. You're like, oh, didn't know this game was on. And it, it was a game that was supposed to take place a couple of weeks ago, sort of like the the West Ham game during the week there on on Wednesday night. So it's just adding that extra layer to the already congested fixture that we are fixture list that we already have. And honestly, I'm just annoyed that my fantasy football team is suffering badly because of it. Because I just don't know when these games are happening anymore. So I don't know what what lineup to use when I'm talking about my fantasy football team. It makes things really difficult. You know, I last. Um... My last updated fantasy football team was putting Gareth Barry in midfield after he scored wow. in the Manchester Derby at Old Trafford in the Michael Owen game. So that's the last time I updated my team. So I, I like it probably needs a few new players. So I can just live vicariously through you in this fantasy football life. Uh, I actually I read uh, a report during the week that um, fantasy football affects your mental health. And uh, I'd like you to take up that conversation. Is that true? 
Well, I, I think it's definitely affected the way that people view football in a negative sense, I would say, largely because even myself, I find myself rooting for players that I shouldn't be rooting for. You know, oh, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, 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 so, yeah. so, for example, if, if oh, yeah. say, Liverpool are playing Man, Man City, I'm really hoping for Mo Salah to score because he's my he's my captain. So you, it almost makes you root for the teams that you shouldn't be rooting for. And I, I that's something I really struggle with. It's really conflicting as a modern football fan. Well, it's a form of betting, really, isn't it? It's um, because kind of is, yeah, except yeah, without money. Yeah, but your natural instincts are compromised by the fact that you have something riding on it. Like so, mm-hmm. well, like when you like, I mean, maybe that's the reason that. I can get tired of the amount of football on because I have nothing riding on it. Like I don't bet in football and I don't play fantasy football anymore. So I'm literally, I'm watching uh, every match in the hope that it will be a great match. And just logistically speaking, you're only going to have uh, very few brilliant matches every season. So like in, in the recent past, Chelsea, Liverpool at Stamford Bridge in the draw was absolutely fantastic. And like, they're the games that it's worth sitting through maybe nine other poor ones to get to that brilliant one. And that's, you know, you realize, oh, that's why I like watching football. So I can imagine that the stakes are risen considerably when you have something riding on the game, whether it be money or your fantasy football team. But uh, yeah, I've never been, um, I've never been attracted back into it. Like, would you recommend me going back into fantasy football? The thing that I've started now with my group of friends is the fantasy football draft, which is the same as the NFL draft where everyone gets one pick which I've enjoyed a lot more because at the end of the day, most people on the normal regular fantasy football end up with the exact same team. You know what I mean? Like halfway through the season, everyone has Salah, everyone has Mares, everyone has the players that are doing really well. Whereas you just can't do that when you have a fantasy draft. The downside to it is that you can end up with an absolutely putrid team. If you don't get the right sort of order in which you're allowed to select these players, for example, myself, by the time I got to got around to selecting a striker, all the best ones were gone. So I was left with, you know, the uh, the brunts of the litter. So explain to me now, will will Chris Wood be hot property because he just moved to Newcastle? Like who's hot and who's not right now in fantasy football? I honestly haven't looked at my fantasy football in the last couple of weeks, so I don't know. But the likes Pardon of Chris me. Wood, let's, 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 well, we may as well dive into the, the topics of the night. And Chris Wood is one of them. The January transfer window is in full flow. As they say, Coutinho has moved back to Aston Villa. Chris Wood has made a move to his, uh, I don't know, what would you call them, fellow relegation candidates. And uh, Luca Dean has moved from Everton to Aston Villa as well. So Stephen Gerrard getting some business done at Villa Park. But Chris Wood has moved to Newcastle from Burnley for £25 million. Now, I came under a little bit of criticism on Twitter for comparing the like for like of Eddie Howe's business so far and uh, Ange Postacoglu's up at Celtic for obvious reasons. You know, there's a bit of a tongue in cheek going on there between Celtic fans and Newcastle fans, but 25 million for a 30 year old Chris Wood. I don't care how many goals he has scored. That's terrible business. No, I mean, it's not because uh, Newcastle United are the richest football club in the world and their 25 million is basically the equivalent of Two and a half million for them, really. It's nothing. If they just met his release clause and they want to get their business done, they need a striker. And um, Chris Wood's a perfectly fine Premier League striker. I find myself sporadically thinking of Chris Wood every few months. And I just think, like, you know nothing about this guy. And he just shows up every like three or four weeks and will he'll find the net, usually at Turf Moor. And they're like, oh, he's, good. he's a good player. And then he'll go missing again for a few more weeks. And I, I always thought to my, I, I was literally going for a walk a few weeks ago and I just started talking about, thinking about Chris Wood. I was like, he's a bit of a throwback striker. Doesn't really belong in modern Premier League. And then when I saw the, 
even the tra- I mean, this was one of those transfers. I love those transfers where it just happens. There's not even a rumor. It's just the, the push notification on your phone is Chris Wood set to move to Newcastle. And I was like, whoa, well, I didn't even know they were looking at him. Um, and I would imagine that he couldn't believe his luck that they signed him because I, you, you would think that his salary is significantly increased now. Um, and I think he will be the future answer to the quiz question of who is Newcastle's second major signing after the Saudis took over. And I think there'll be a few uh, head scratchers there among the uh, the contingent in the quiz. But I, I think he's fine. Like I, I'm not being funny when I say it could be in half preparation for the championship that they're signing Chris Wood because I don't think he'll go anywhere in the summer. Whereas you could argue that their other signing so far, Kieran Trippier, if Newcastle do go down, he might look around thinking, well, look, the World Cup is a few months away. I probably need yeah. to get back into the Premier League. So Wood, I think Wood is smart business. I think people are just turned off by the price tag. And like for Newcastle, I know twenty five million pounds is an outrageous number to pay for um, for the likes of Wood, but for Newcastle, it makes no difference to them. It's pennies. Mm. Yeah, look, the number that has been thrown around is the fact that Chris Wood has scored more than ten goals in four consecutive Premier League seasons, which is not something to be sort of turning your nose up at no. just because of the the type of player he is. But I don't know. I just think it shows a real lack of ambition on Newcastle's behalf. But on the other side of that, I was looking at Manchester City's first couple of signings um, under their new ownership when they got taken over. And Manchester City are in a different position to what Newcastle are. They're not battling out for relegation. They were a mid-table side. Yeah, They did sign Rocky Santa Cruz for 30 million at that point in time from Blackburn Rovers. And Ro- Rocky Santa Cruz was one of the, you know, peak Barclays players on that Blackburn side. But he also was not a 30 million striker at the time. So... You also you have to take in the caveat that people are going to over. Well, I, I know Chris Woods was a a, a, a buyout clause anyway, but people yeah. are going to overprice their players. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be the Newcastle tax now, the same way it would be the United tax. I don't think they'll care that much unless they're outrageously priced and quoted uh, about a player that they really don't think is valued. And maybe that's what happened with Wood that they went to him. He's an alternative. But if you do look at Manchester City's early signings in the Abu Dhabi region uh, regime, you look at um. Wayne Bridge and Craig Bellamy, I think, came in the first January transfer window, if memory serves. Um, and then you have, say, the likes of Kieran Trippier would, I would say, fall in line with the quality of Bridge and Bellamy. So they're probably going to have the same graphic in the first few years as Man City did then. Because it's still an attractive proposition, Newcastle. You, you rarely hear uh, as much from another club about their attendance. Like St. James's Park, Every time you hear about it, it's like, oh, 52,000. Jordy's going mm. mad. 52,000. It's always the number you hear. So they're massive into their attendance and the passion of Newcastle fans. And, uh, you know, it's the only sport that matters up there. It's the only thing that people talk about on the street. So it is a, it is a very attractive proposition for a lot of players out there. I did question about who would possibly want to go there uh, in terms of players with the sufficient quality to get them out of trouble. But then when Trippier signed, I was really surprised. I was really surprised he went because I was thinking like unless now Diego Simeone wanted him out of Atletico or unless he was just really unhappy in Spain, like he only won the league a few months ago and he's in the team, if not all the time, certainly regularly and he's a big outlet on the right side for Atletico and then he goes from that to a club that are, you know, all the statistics will tell you they're going to go down this season. Um, So again, like money talks and it's just a job for a lot of these players and albeit like they're still going to try their heart out because they want to get yeah. into the contract if possible. But uh, I think that's where it's going to start for Newcastle. And I think it's falling in line with the way that Man City started their business when they first got money in. Mm. Listen, if I'm a 30-year-old player 
looking for a Premier League club and Newcastle coming knocking and I'm quadrupling my paycheck potentially until for the final three or four years of my career, you're, you're probably taking that. It depends. It depends who you are. It depends who you are, in my opinion. If you're Trippier, I think he's mad to go. I don't think he should have gone. I think he could have got um, not as big a contract, but a decent contract at a much better place, Premier League club. I think he's way better than Newcastle. I think if you're Woods, then absolutely, this is um, this is brilliant, and you'll you'll probably get players of a sufficient quality that will keep you in the Premier League should they stay this season. Uh, so for the next year or two, they'll probably have to stay at that level of player, maybe a bit better each window. Um, so if you can prove that you're capable of staying in the Premier League, you have a manager who knows what he's doing in Eddie Howe, which I think he does. I think Eddie Howe is a good manager. Um, then you will attract slightly better players. Uh, and players that want to go because, as you say, it's a serious payday. So you'll get pay- players in their peak, late 20s, early 30s, who will do a job for you for two or three years. And then maybe in five or six years' time, Newcastle can start a new cycle of the best up-and-coming players throughout Europe. So it could happen for them. Mm-hmm. But like, if they were to go down this summer, it'll be interesting to see how many players hang around and if they have the sufficient quality to come back up. They've done that in the past, but will players uh, want to stay around uh, when they have so many other options in the Premier League? Mm. yeah it's a different story if the club is located in not Newcastle you know what I mean like Damien Delaney spoke about how important it was for a lot of the players that he played with to be in London to be based in London because that's Mm. where firstly that's where their wives wanted to live and that's where they wanted to live it was just convenient for them Newcastle's cold in the winter it there you know it's 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 definitely not uh, metropolitan London it's a fun city but it ain't London well, it's, um, yeah, and but, it's small. It's small because Damien Duff talked about the abuse he used to get in Newcastle when he wasn't playing well, and he said you can't hide from it. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things about, it. like you say, yeah, it is small, and London is, you know, the cosmopolitan place to be in England, especially for people who uh, have no previous experience in England and they want to go to the nicest place. They have uh, no say in, the, or you know, no horse in the race in terms of like the preferred destination in England. They just want to go to the nicest place, and that happens to be London for a lot of people. So yeah, they are like they are geographically up against it but monetarily they're in the most advanced position possible yeah big time one of the first players that was actually linked with a move to Newcastle after the takeover was Felipe Coutinho who Mm -hmm. has been out of favour at Barcelona and Bayern Munich over the last couple of years since his 145 million move from Liverpool to Barcelona and that happened three and a half four years ago at this point in time so you're speaking about a trajectory of a player that did not end up in the same uh, place that many people might have expected him to. And now he's back at Aston Villa with his former captain, Steven Gerrard, at the at the reins. It's a short-term loan. This is seems to be something that, you know, Felipe Coutinho sees as potentially a launchpad again for his career that has gone off the rails a little bit over the last couple of years. I say it has gone off the rails, but he also has won a Champions League in his period, so it also seems to level itself mm. out a little bit. What do you think of Coutinho? Do you think he's going to be able to get back to the player that we saw at Liverpool first time around? In terms of his ability, unquestionably, in terms of his desire and his confidence, that's the big doubt. And my worry for Coutinho is that he plays bits and pieces of the rest of the season and then Aston Villa don't take up to op- the option to sign him permanently for £33 million, which is the quota price for Barcelona. And then you kind of think, well, where would he go next? And... Maybe he'd have to, you know, certainly leave Barcelona, but maybe leave Europe as well and and go to play where he just can fundamentally enjoy his football. I I do think because I, I I do think he can recapture his form because I think Stephen Gerrard will put his arm around him big time and I think constantly remind him of remember how good you are with us back in Liverpool because 
people can forget he was sensational for Liverpool, especially towards the end. And when Barcelona paid that astronomical fee for him, it was in the January transfer window as well, I think. I don't remember an awful lot of people, certainly in the majority, who thought that's way too much money for Coutinho. There was certainly a large minority who thought that's a lot of money for Coutinho, considering his contract situation. Um, but I, I remember personally thinking, like, if Barcelona can afford it, now it subsequently emerged that they couldn't. But if they could afford it at the time, I thought, yeah, that's good business because at this moment in time, like, you're not going to find a better playmaker in Europe. And that was the case. And then he moved to Barcelona and just all went wrong. And it's like a fascinating case study of what can happen when you change club and change environment that what was previously so good is no longer the case. And it, uh, I'm not saying the grass wasn't, isn't always greener because... Barcelona was a better position club than Liverpool at that time. So Coutinho was making the right call, I think. But it just went so mm-hmm. disastrously wrong for him. And then, as you say, he had that mad period in, in the middle where he had that season-long loan at Bayern Munich. And Barcelona let him play against them in the Champions League. And he scored against them. And he, he did really well. And I, was, I remember being delighted for him that he won the Champions League of Bayern. Because he, like, you know, we're talking like two Manchester United fans here. And there's a handful of Liverpool players in my lifetime that I, you know, had a secret crush on. And Coutinho is one of them because when he was on form, he was just absolutely brilliant and I really wanted him at United. So wouldn't it be great now, Enda, if he did well at Villa for 18 months and then he ended up at United in summer 2023? I, I can't see that happening somehow. But wouldn't it be, be great? very though? surprised. Coutinho had that one move in particular that was practically unplayable at the time at Liverpool where he would cut in on his right foot and curl it into the far top corner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did it countless times a year that he moved to Barcelona. But I think one of the issues with the Barcelona move, firstly, is that he was coming in to replace Neymar, who had been um, just un- unbelievable for Barcelona. A completely different player, I think, to the PSG one. You know, n- yes, he had his ego at Barcelona too, but not as much as he has at PSG right now. And he was like that season where Suarez, Neymar and, and Messi scored over 100 goals between them. I mean, that was like peak Barcelona, really sensational football at the time. So he came with a lot of pressure on him, on his shoulders at Barcelona. And we all know the pressure at Barcelona and at Real Madrid is different to anything that you experience in the Premier League. So I can understand why it didn't potentially work out for him at the time. But it's going yeah. to be interesting to see what he does at Villa, though, because... From my eyes, he doesn't fit in at Villa. He doesn't fit in as as the starting number 10. They've got Quindia, loads of quick yeah. wing, wingers. They play fast uh, attacking football, high-pressing football. And I just don't think their style necessarily suits Felipe Coutinho unless he's going to be playing a different role. Well, yeah, I, I think the role is kind of the second most important thing. I think for Coutinho, it's about nourishment. And I think, again, the Gerard putting his arm around him because if you look at his career to date, Coutinho he flourishes when he's given all the confidence in the world because when he was at Inter, he was promising, a promising talent, but he certainly wasn't integral to their team. So when Brendan Rodgers bought him in Liverpool, it was kind of seen as a bit of a punt. You know, this guy has a lot of talent. Let's see, let's see if he cuts it. And there was probably a lot of people at the time thinking like, oh, another talented player was going to come into the Premier League and struggle with the physicality of it. Um, and it took him a while to adapt to England. And then all of a sudden, he was the best player in the league for a short period, albeit a short period of time, but a significant period of time that he was outstanding. So I guess it's trying to uh, to introduce an environment where Coutinho feels free to flourish and also um, free enough to lose the ball and not have your head drop. I think that's probably the most important thing at the moment. Then you can fit him into a system where he's actually going to uh, 
flourish as much as possible in the team. So that for me is the most important thing. I don't think like if you're Aston Villa and you have the opportunity to sign Coutinho, I don't think you turn it down because he may possibly not fit into the system at the moment. You at least give it half a season, which is what they're going to do at least. Yeah, I think a loan to buy option with the uh, the fee being 30 odd million for Felipe Coutinho is a pretty non like low risk move for for Steven Gerrard because if it works out, you've got a world class player there, but if it doesn't work out, you know, it's not the end of the world. No, no, yeah. Um, Gerard, I mean, Jared will say, look, I, I, I took a chance. It didn't work out. And then all eyes will be on Coutinho more than Villa. It'll be like, what's wrong with Philip exactly. Coutinho? Not what's wrong with Aston Villa. So yeah, like it's smart, smart business by Villa for a number of reasons. If they can just instill a bit of confidence into him, then he can do really well. My worry for him is it would take him a few months to get back into it. And then by that time, the season's over. So then Villa are really going to decide, okay, are we going to, has he returned enough on our investment that we're actually going to make this permanent? Or are there better yeah. players in the market? So it's a testing time for Coutinho. Yeah, for sure. Another player that has moved to Villa Park is uh, Luca Dean, another former Barcelona player, as well as a, an Everton player. It's just a, this. I don't want to spend too much time on him, but it just seems so bizarre and a sign of intent from Everton that they would let one of their best players go because they are fully backing this manager who has really failed to capture any sort of imagination at the club so far. Yeah, it is. It's an odd one. There must have been um, significant behind-the-scenes issues if you're le- leaving a, a player of the calibre of Dean Go, and um, there's no obvious upgrade in his position either. So it is. It is strange, and it's. Um, I think, like talking now, we'll be looking back at this period of time at Everton and the uh, Rafa Benitez era as like that was kind of the really was the start at the end. Like there were a lot of poor results, but when he made that decision. Um, we're not really sure what he was doing. Was it a power play? And look what happened to him. I think that's what we'll be saying in the future. And it looks to be the case now. Like it just, you know, you were talking about like Chris Wood with Newcastle Burnley and similar uh, clubs in similar positions and rivals. For me, you know, Everton and Aston Villa are similarly uh, placed in terms of rivalry in the Premier League. And for me, Benitez is just strengthened one of his rivals, pure and simple. And he don't, I don't, unless now he has a really good uh, replacement in mind that we don't know about yet. But from the, from what I saw of Dean when I was watching Everton games, I was always impressed by him. I was always impressed by um, his technique going forward and his confidence and energy in attack. And he, I, I often thought he outperformed their own Seamus Coleman on the opposite flank and that he was one of Everton's main threats. So, look, unless Dean made it uh, implausible for him to continue at Everton and he demanded to leave and Benitez had no choice in the matter, which could well happen, um, could well have happened. It's a strange move from Everton. If I was a Villa fan right now, I'd be delighted. Um, <clears throat> no, we haven't kicked the football since Dean and Coutinho uh, signed. So let's see what happens. But right now, you're far happier as a Villa fan than Everton. With Everton, it's, uh, it's a real strange um, time for them. And Benitez has this kind of obsession with adding winger after winger to the club. And he's, he's linked with more wide players. So he's really trying to build a certain type of team, like a, a real throwback kind of mid-naughties team where the emphasis is with and uh, fair play to him if it works out. Because I actually thought his business for Andras Townsend and uh, Tamari Gray was good, considering uh, it was $1.7 million in total for the two of them. Mm. One of them was free. And I thought for the first couple of months of the season, it looked to, to be working out. But like with Manchester United and a number of other clubs in the Premier League, like Arsenal too, there seems to be a deep-rooted cultural issue at Everton. And I don't know if it's all to do with Benitez, but I don't think he's helping. There's nothing... Everton managers love more. And I, I don't mean just Rafa Benitez. I mean the last couple of Everton managers. Nothing they love more than an incons- inconsistent winger who's 
lightning for about five weeks and then does nothing for the rest of the season. And it just seems to be a really weird situation in terms of the power struggle at Everton right now because firstly, when it was between Benitez and the sporting director, Benitez came out on top. Now it's between Benitez and Dean, Benitez came out on top. So they're really giving all the reins to him. So they'd really hope that this actually works out for Benitez because if it doesn't, then the club's going to be a mess by the end of it. Do you know, ever since Everton beat Arsenal 1-0 Monday Night Football and Seamus Coleman post-match had Demary Gray next to him and said, you know, this is what this kid can do. Like, if he just keeps it up, you know, he has to be more consistent. And that was a kind of call to arms for Gray and a bit of a challenge to him. And ever since then, we haven't seen Gray. And that's kind of Everton in a nutshell. Well, like, is there any more frustrating club to follow than Everton? Because you're just no. in a purgatory forever. Like, seventh place. I, I think the only club worse to support is Norwich. Because it's like completely pointless uh, supporting Norwich. Just go back up and go back down. Unless you're yeah. in the championship. I'd, I'd love to support Norwich in the championship. But yeah, but then you know you're, you're by far the best team, so you should be going back up. So you yeah. kind of enjoy football every other season. But with Everton, it's the cruel uh, potential of promise. And, you know, we're really going to build a great team. And if you look at Everton squads throughout the last decade, like it's improving on paper every season, but it's almost regressing on the pitch. It's, uh, mm. I can, oh, I, I have sympathy for... Um, the odd few Everton um, supporting uh, friends that I have because when just when they get their hopes up, they're pulled back. Yeah, I've I've a soft spot for Everton in general as a club, but as a yeah, football as a football team, I despise them because they're incredibly inconsistent and always end up somehow in eighth place or around there. Let let's move on to Manchester United. You mentioned them there. They were playing on Monday night against the aforementioned Aston Villa. In the FA Cup, somehow they came out on top. A 1-0 win for them. They scraped through into the fourth round. Aston Villa probably deserved to win that game by at least two goals in the end. Two goals disallowed. You know, United really, again, failing to capture any sort of imagination from the fans. But one player in particular has come under a lot of criticism since that game. And I, I think deservedly so. And that's Marcus Rashford. So uh, context to all this is that Rashford at the weekend put up a statement on Twitter saying that, you know, you shouldn't question his work rate. He always loved this club and the usual football jargon nonsense that goes into these football statements. And he followed it up with a really abysmal performance. And I, I don't use that word lightly because I feel like you have to consider things that are going into a player's mindset going into a game. But there was one occasion where Greenwood in the first half, had the ball, had a shot, and Marcus Rashford's just standing in the penalty box. He's not doing anything. He's not moving. He's not looking for the ball. He's not looking for the rebound. He's just standing there waiting for the ball to be turned over. And in the second half, Greenwood again gets the ball, and he ha- this time he has a shot, and Martinez spills it. And, instead- and Mar- Marcus Rashford is about three to four yards away from this ball. And in previous years, you would have seen him chasing after that ball. Best case scenario, who gets on it, he scores. Worst case scenario, he might nick a, a, a touch on it. Martinez takes him down, it's a penalty to United. Instead, what Rashford does is he throws his arms up in the air, turns around and walks the other way. And that's just not something that you come to uh, to be accustomed with with Marcus Rashford. So it really seems like there's something going on in his head there and maybe he needs to be pulled out of it. Did you ever watch Dream Team? I did. 
what's happening with Marcus Rashford at the moment reminds me of a storyline with a player who's just going through a terrible time and it's over dramatized for the benefit of the viewer because it's fictional and and the highlights of one of the matches they show where it's clearly Chelsea and they've just slightly edited it to be more purple in the jersey and uh, Greenwood takes the shot and then the star striker Rashford doesn't follow up on it and then they have a shot away to the crowd and the crowd are going crazy and then the next scene in the episode is back in the dressing room and the manager's throwing boots at Rashford and everyone's laying into him he's just his head down and then you're really worried for the player Honestly, this is like turning into real life. So when he got subbed against Aston Villa on Monday night and uh, the camera's on him and he just has that million mile stare and you're like concerned for the guy. And um, But it's, in this case, it really is happening. And then he had that tweet on Saturday afternoon and and we reacted to it on Off the Ball and Damien Delaney, as he said, and, you know, just immediately was like, what, what are you doing? And we all thought that. And, you know, and he had the statement next to a picture of him training and it's like... Rashford's talking to his millions of fans, but really he's talking to himself out loud. And I imagine he sat there and thought, this is what I need to do because it's going to help me out of my funk. But he's just putting more pressure on himself then because less than two days later, everyone's watching him play and he has an abysmal performance. So now he, he probably can't tweet for a while because mm -hmm. he knows he's going to get even more abuse. I, I really fe felt for him when he didn't actually go in for the rebound because I think we've all been there in life at times where you just don't have any energy to try because it's all going wrong for you. And, whatever walk of life you're doing and it can happen it can transfer to the pitch and it's just like I can't do this anymore kind of thing and he might have that uh, fatalistic attitude at the moment where I'm never going to be able to play football again but like you look at his stats um, and he's he's such an impressive player I mean as recently as 2019-20 he scored 17 Premier League goals and 31 starts and he's 57 Premier League goals overall with 31 assists um, and there's a myriad of other stats too to describe Rashford and, and illustrate how brilliant he can be um, so we know it's there and I suppose that's a frustration for him is that he knows it's there and it's just about recapturing it and at this stage you know I've heard in the last couple of weeks murmurs of uh, questioning whether should Rashford move on to another club at least short term just to try something else and get out of the United environment and maybe come back another time and initially I dismissed that idea and I thought sure, leaving is not always the answer and in the last few days I thought might not be the worst idea might not be, unless the manager coming in in the summer to replace Ralph Rangnick really can, a bit like continue with Gerrard, put his arm around him and say, Marcus, you're brilliant. Take the pressure off yourself because, uh, you know, the reports that we're hearing all week is that while his body language has been terrible and can often be poor throughout the years, it looks like he's not doing as much as he actually is statistically. Um, but in training, he's doing, you know, triple sessions and, and there's people suggesting that he's actually forcing it and he's trying too hard. And he's trying to learn everything off Cristiano Ronaldo. But Ronaldo's a different beast altogether, the way he mentally prepares for games. Don't think you can compare yourself to him. And I don't know if he's trying to be like another Ronaldo mentality-wise. But I guess for Rashford, he just needs to go back to his happy place. And he seems to have been really struggling ever since he not just missed the penalty in the shootout of the Euro 2020 final against Italy, but all throughout that tournament, he's, he seemed to really struggle. And uh, I don't know now is the answer just to take a few, take a few weeks out or maybe play him in the less pressurised games just to see if he can mm -hmm. knock a few goals under his belt and then he can get going again. But uh, it's the lowest point in his United career right now. Uh, but it's worth putting time and investment into him because we know that he can do it. We know that he can return mm -hmm. to brilliant form. Another report is that he apparently went to Solskjaer and said that yeah. his, his role was unclear and apparently Solskjaer told him to you know suck it up. 
um, yeah, which you know, we, we can't conf- yeah. yeah, we can't confirm or deny whether that's true or not. But that's that's one of the stories that's coming out. The one thing that does frustrate me with the Rashford stuff is the people who bring the charity stuff into it and say that he should concentrate on football instead. Honestly, if I'm going to choose between Marcus Rashford being a, a good footballer for Manchester United or him feeding thousands of children in the UK, I think I'd rather feed him feed thousands of children in the UK, if I'm being completely honest. But uh, that's it's just one of the frustrating things that when you do these things in public, it leads to this sort of nonsense that you get on social media with people attacking him for that. But um, in general, United have just been really poor. And I, I think it's not, I, I don't know if it's down to Ralph Ragnick, to be honest, if I'm being completely honest. I've watched United several times now over the last couple of weeks. And they're one of the worst passing teams I've mm. ever seen at this level. Like the simple five yard passes breaks down the United attack and gives over a possession of the ball. So it's not a quick fix at Old Trafford um, at all if you're looking at what's uh, actually happening on the pitch. In terms of other stuff that's going on, Chidozi Ogbeni was speaking to our own Ashley O'Reilly earlier on this week uh, for off the ball. Uh, he's obviously doing his bits with Rotherham in League One. And his contract situation is, is still sort of up in the air, but he, he seems to be confident enough that if he doesn't get a new contract, that he will get a, a move elsewhere. Ogbeni, from your neck of the woods column, a yeah. lot of praise for him during his early stints at Ireland. And he's, he's one of the most exciting players that we've had because it just gives us something that we we haven't had for a long time in terms of that winger who's not afraid to take risks. Yeah, brilliant. And he's a symbol of the players coming through um, across Ireland as well and the, and the team that we could very soon have at, uh, across the board at national senior level. And like you say, yeah, he like the great thing about Benny is that he loves the ball, if you know what I mean, whereas... Um, Maybe Irish teams when we were growing up were, you know, backs against the wall and all about grinding out results, which is, you know, great in itself. But I think, you know, Ireland are long overdue modernizing into how football is played now. And Ogbeni is kind of a symbol of that. But yeah, like in preparation for our chat today about Ogbeni, I was talking to uh, one of his former coaches, Declan Coleman. He's Cork City first team coach. And he trained uh, Ogbeni before he got the, the move over. And I was just asking um, Declan about him, like, you know, what's he like? Did you ever see that? Did you always see that potential in him? And he was just saying that the big thing about Ogbeni was that he was raw. Um, he could be very threatening uh, going forward, but his decision-making kind of was the thing that they needed to work on and his end product. But he said more than anything is he had a, a world-class attitude and he was willing to take on uh, constructive criticism all the time. And they would carpool on the way to matches and training and the whole time, Ogbeni was asking for more and more information about how he can improve and comparing his game to professionals' games and watching clips of other players and uh, just seeing where he can improve. And uh, it was just a really interesting insight from uh, from Declan, from his coaching of him, because he, he was playing youth football with Everton in Cork, the club in Cork. So that's where Declan started coaching him. And then um, he was with him with Chamor and Crinty, College Corinthians, Killerine, all these Cork clubs. So um, they, Cork City signed him for the under-19s team from those clubs and he just um, evolved with each passing month because his biggest thing, as I said, was he was just taking on information the whole time. And I was asking Deck, look, ultimately, could, did you see this coming? Did you see that he would be a success, that he, you were dealing with the future Irish senior international? And Deck said, look, I, I've coached a lot of very talented players, 
So you always think that certain players can do it, but you're never sure. You can never be sure about any player, regardless of how talented they are, because it's all about their attitude and their adaptability and their ability to come back from poor spells. And he said in that context, he never doubted Albeni. So he said he's delighted to see him where he is now. And he said, it's always the caveat that he still has loads of room for improvement. But he said, in terms of attitudes, you wouldn't deal with a better player. Just really, really mm-hmm. mature and knew how he needed to improve. And we're kind of seeing the fruits of that labor now. Yeah, and I think one of the great things about him is actually that he is playing in League One because he's sort of this unknown figure within the Irish setup. So if you take the the Luxembourg or the, the Portugal games, for example, they didn't really know what to do with him because it seemed like they didn't know, like didn't do much background on him, didn't really know. Um, he was this unknown quantity. And every time he got the ball, he absolutely terrified their defense because he would just get it and run at them. And because he's a physical guy for his age, he was really difficult to put off the ball as well. So it's, it's exciting to see that type of player playing for Ireland yeah. again who's just not afraid to take risks. But also he has a lot of confidence. It seems he's telling our uh, our own Ashley and O'Reilly that that he thinks Ireland can top the group in the Nations League this year when he was looking ahead to to what's happening. It's not going to be for another couple of months, but he thinks that um, this team is capable of topping the group, which again is not something that you're used to hearing from Irish players. Not at all. And again, it's just great. It's just part of the cultural reboot that I was talking about earlier is that um, we, as Irish football fans, we used to maybe have to look abroad for how we like to see football played and admire other players from other countries and their attitude towards football. But now we're finally seeing it with our own. And it's going to be a work in progress. There's going to be a lot of um, backward steps along the way as we're going forward. But like Ogbené is both saying all the right things and doing the right things on the pitch. And it's like everything that we're seeing in terms of like uh, Ogbené's interview with our own Ashling and what we're seeing on the pitch in his feud of space so far for Ireland uh, is all backed up by what Declan was telling me about what he was like coaching him throughout his teenage years. And Declan said, look, there's plenty more of uh, Ogbené out there. So it's about getting those players through. And um, look, thankfully, look, we've had this discussion before, what I'm about to say, but, you know, it's great that Ireland is far more culturally diverse in the last 20 years than any time prior. So we're getting, uh, we're getting a lot of options out there from football players coming through. So it's brilliant. And like, it's genuinely exciting to see what type of Ireland team is going to take to the pitch in the coming decades, because like, it's a long overdue modernization of our methods. And I think we're going to see the fruits of that labor very soon. Yeah, big time. That interview is coming up after the break. So, Colm, thanks very much for this evening. Nice one, Enda. All right. So, coming up after the break, I'll bring you that chat between Ashleen and Ireland's own Chido Jose Ogbeni. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now, you're welcome back to Team 33. Enda Call here with you. So, as I mentioned before the break, our own Ashleen O'Reilly has been speaking to Chidoze Ogbeni of Rotherham and of Ireland. He is very much looking forward to this year in terms of his Ireland career and in terms of his own career at club level as well. So here is Ashleen O'Reilly speaking to Chidoze Ogbeni. Chio, you're having uh, some season so far in club and country. How are you feeling about it all? You must be happy. I'm over the moon. I'm very grateful. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine this, you know, everything going well for me especially for my club, you know, I've, you know, I grew up, I mean, sorry, for my country, I grew up in Ireland and, you know, I've seen, you know, Robbie Keane and all these guys when we were younger in primary school and, you know, Damien Duff and uh, I wouldn't have imagined to get the opportunity I'm getting. And I, you know, as, as I said to Aidan about um, being injured um, last year and being part of the national team, 
it was overwhelming for myself and my family. And, you know, I'm just so happy how things are going. And at the club level, um, <laughs> you know, we were relegated last year and, you know, it was a sad time for the club and most of the players. But um, that's behind us now. And I'm, I'm happy how um, we've reacted to the disappointment and, you know, put our act together really to, to really show people what we're capable of in this league. And coming back from injury, I know you touched on it there. Like that can be really tough to be, to be sitting on the sideline and watching on. How was that mentally to deal with? Uh, I'm not going to lie. It was, it was mentally tough at the start. You know, it was my first major injury. So I never experienced something like this and never had surgery before. So to miss a lot of football, I think it was the, the recovery stage was more difficult. You know, you're obviously in pain and um, you, you want to be back in the football pitch, but you want to be back and stronger you know, um, stronger than ever. So you have to be very careful and, you know, how you, you push yourself. I think that was the main thing because I'm quite ambitious. I'm quite hard on myself. So I used to push myself harder than usual, but my body was just recovering at its own pace. So I just had to be more patient. And that's what, that was the hardest thing for me. And, you know, to see the, to see my teammates out there um, battling every week and, you know, really getting the results. And I, I felt like I can offer something to the team. It was uh, disheartening. But, um, you know, that's behind us now. And at the moment, um, are you still in contract talks? Have they moved forward at all? Contract talks, yeah, it's ongoing. Um, it's mm-hmm. positive, it's ongoing. Um, as I said before, uh, I'm still contracted with the club until the end of the season and they have an option yet. So at the, at the start of the year, my, my goals was to, um, was to you know, win the league, obviously, um, gain promotion with Rotherham. So I'm trying to achieve my goal and get back to the championship and see where it takes me. And at times with those sort of things, does that ever stress you out or do you just sort of put that to the back of your mind and get on with the job? Um, I'm, 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 I'm happy I have uh, good people around me. My agent mm-hmm. looks after everything. My family, you know, does the worrying for me. I don't tend to worry. I, I think like, you know, I have a good relationship with the club. You know, we're not, we're not stressing each other out. It's just conversation, have a conversation just to, to see how things are moving. So uh, I don't. I tend to not let that um, wor- um, worry me because I, I I have people around me to look after all that for me. Yeah, brilliant. And Wes Hulahan, he had a lot of praise for you after playing against you. Was that nice to hear? Yeah, he actually approached me and he said he's a big fan of what I'm doing and you know he's gonna keep watch out for me. It was, uh, it was some nice words from you know Wes that obviously every kid knew Wes when he was at Norwich and you know what he used to do and that and. Uh, even at, at 36, I believe, uh, we played um, West. And 39. I was shots. 39, wow, that's <laughs> even amazing. What he was doing on the pitch caused us a lot of problems. At uh, one stage, I almost said I had to pull his jersey down. So I was, uh, I was quite shocked <laughs> in what he's doing. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's a huge honour for, you know, someone of that, um, you know, calibre saying, saying nice things about you. It's really nice to hear. And with Ireland now, what are your aspirations there? Um, obviously, we got the Nations League in June. Uh, I know this is quite ambitious of me, but you know we have uh, is a four games in ten games in ten days. Mm-hmm. I do believe that we you know we have um, you know we have what it takes to to finish top of the group. Um, I think with the momentum of finishing the last campaign, we're gonna take that with us. And uh, I do be, I have you know maybe I believe in the team more than you know anyone else, but I do believe that we have what it takes to to finish top of the group, and that's what my ambitions are. You know to go out and you know be Scotland, be all these teams, and uh, finish in the group and qualify. And to get the call up from Stephen Kenny, can you just tell us a little bit about getting that call and how it was for you and your family? Um, uh, well, firstly, he, um, 
a week before the, the, the squad was going to be announced, you know, I heard rumors that he might have made his plans. It was June for the camp. And uh, we finished the season and I was home. Actually, it was about 7 a.m. in bed. I was home and I got a phone call from Steve Kenny and I was kind of nervous. I didn't know what to expect. And he said, uh, Chidozi, I'm, you know, I'm looking to take you in the camp in, in, in Spain. And, you know, I kind of went numb because, you know, you don't know what to say. I didn't have my boots um, with me because I didn't expect me to be called. So, the, you know, the next day and I flew back to UK to get my boots and get myself ready. And uh, it was overwhelming, honestly. Um, you know, my family were very happy for me. Before I could even finish a sentence, my flight was booked. My brother booked my flight. So they were all, they were all shocked for me. And um, no, really, I was, as I said to you, I was quite shocked. You know, I played only 11 championship games, you know, a lot off the bench. So to get that recognition, you know, in, in the short games I played, it was um, honestly, it was, it was amazing. And just when you say you had to go back and get your boots, would you be ever able to buy like a new pair or you have to go get the ones you're playing in? Uh, I, I needed to get the one. I didn't want to get a new pair and go to Spain and, you know, you have to wear them in. I was happy with the ones I was wearing and I, I just, I was determined I get um, the stuff I'm used to training each and every day. So I needed to be ready. I bought a new set of boots, but uh, I needed my original ones to make sure I don't have, I don't waste a day. I don't waste any day, you know, trying to wear in boots. I'm straight in and, you know, straight in the mixer. Yeah, I definitely get that. Um, so anyway, with Stephen Kenny, the, the contract talks are going on at the minute. Um, do you, I suppose, if you do care if he signs a new deal, would you like him to, to sign a new deal? Of course I would. Uh, he's the manager that gave me the opportunity and, you know, the reason I'm here talking to you, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, think, I think he's a great guy. You know, he has great ambition for the team and I think the boys, uh, the, the boys like him, really. And, um, you know, he's a, you can tell he's a family guy. <laughs> he's a family guy, quite gentle with his team talks. And, you know, that's, you know, quite similar to me. I do like, I do like those kind of personalities. And I would, you know, I feel like, um, you, know, he's, you know, it's never easy for any manager. And I feel like, the, you know, the way he finished the, com- the campaign, um, you know, gives us a, a glimpse of what he's capable of. And I, I hope, um, you know, good things come of it. Just, uh, sorry, just last question, if that's okay, Aislinn. Yep, this is my last one. And so for you, ultimately, goal, um, for your club, goal-wise, what would it be? Goal-wise for my club? If you'd like to, a club, if you, like, where you'd like to see yourself club-wise? Oh, in the, in the future? Mm-hmm. Oh, Tough one. well, ideally, and I know, I'm sure Callum will be listening to this, ideally, I want to, you know, play with Rodham in the Premier League. <laughs> Ideally, but um, I don't know. Uh, you know, everyone has ambition uh, to play in the highest level. Um, and I just try to, you know, do it with my current club and we're going to take each step as, as it comes, hopefully get to the championship and, and see what happens. And, you know, I have ambitions. I'm an ambitious guy. So I, I want to get to the next level. I want to play in the Premier League. I want to play in the highest level. So I don't know exactly. Uh, I'm just going to, you know, try my best in every day and see where it takes me. Brilliant, Gio. Thank you. Yeah, so that was Axelin O'Reilly speaking to Chiedoze Ogbeni earlier on this week. That full interview is in the OTB Podcast Network as well. If you want to listen back to that, we'll be back after this break. Now you're welcome back to Team 33. So that is all we have time for on this week's show. Thanks as ever to you for listening. If you want to listen back to that show or any of the Team 33 podcasts, it is available in the OTB Sports app. That's where you can get all the off-the-ball podcasts, all the off-the-ball interviews, and everything else related to off the ball as well. We'll be back again in the same time, same place next week. Until then, Ewa Slangofoil.
Take away, Johan. Take away, Johan.